I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week, we explore the history and politics of prohibition. On March 2nd, the Constitution Center celebrated the opening of a new feature exhibit, American Spirits, the Rise and Fall of Prohibition, which tells the fascinating constitutional story of the passage of the 18th Amendment and its repeal just over a decade later by the 21st Amendment. As part of our great opening party, the historians Lisa Anderson and Josh Zeitz join me in the beautifully renovated Sidney Kimmel Theater to discuss this fascinating period of constitutional history as well as its constitutional legacy. So let's get started. Well, nice to be here. So glad that you're here. Please let us jump right into it, Lisa. Uh, Water. This is, <laughs> okay. Well, pretend it's 1919, okay. so there you we must go. have water. Okay. Although so it's only appropriate. You don't know that there's actually water in here. It That's might be. That's true. It's true. Gin. Consider that as a possibility. It is. <laughs> so, to to a certain degree, we're going to spend the whole show talking about this question. But I want to just begin by asking the obvious one: How did it happen? How did it happen? Well, the first part is that drunk people are annoying, <laughs> especially if you're not drunk. Um, and that really becomes the starting point. But there's a, a few kind of pathways that people come to prohibition. One is simply um, employers. It's really dangerous to have employees who are drinking on the job, which was pretty customary. Um, and especially as America starts to industrialize, that danger becomes even greater. Then you have people who are coming from a fundamentally religious point of view. Part of it is a desire to restrict something they see as sinful, but part of it is also a sense that it's something that prohibits the process of salvation, right? Because people don't have, you need self-determination in order to have that. Um, and then part of it's political, because um, as there's a growing movement of opposition towards corporations and trusts, um, the liquor industry certainly seems to fit that profile. And so there's a lot of people who push back and see it as having infiltrated both of the political parties to the extent that it's really messing with party politics and how, hence overall the, the future of democracy in America, which seems like a big deal. Wow, fascinating. Okay, so employers, there's a religious element, there's an anti-corporate element. Joshua, tell us about more. There's also immigrants in the urban areas versus dry people in the rural areas and progressives, who uh, we think of today as liberal, turned out to be quite anti-immigrant. So tell us about some of that. Yeah, there was quite, the quite a, you know, if you zoom out, there's an incredible backdrop, and some of it will seem familiar to us today because we, we have rough parallels to it going on. I mean, you, this is a period 20 or 30 years leading up to prohibition of, uh, of massive uh, influx of immigrants from countries that today would be considered not particularly um, unusual, but at the time, uh, immigrants from Italy and Ireland and Eastern Europe and Greece, they were considered quite foreign and not necessarily part of the fabric of the kind of old stock American uh, populace. Uh, and they had drinking cultures that, um, that came to uh, kind of represent to many old stock Americans something that was foreign and dangerous and, and not part of the organic you know, American nation. Uh, it's a period of rapid and uh, demographic uh, transformation. You know, there's a period of uh, rapid urbanization. So you had um, 
you know, quite a lot of political and cultural contests that grew up around that. It's also a period of, of cultural innovation. It's a period when gender roles are getting thrown up into the air in part because uh, more women are moving into the workplace, more people moving into cities where there's anonymity that you didn't have in the countryside. Um, you put all of this together and, and something like uh, alcohol or, 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 the, or the prohibition of alcohol became representative of a number of other kind of cultural touch points and so it became um, the type of issue that people could latch onto in a representative way, even if they didn't always do it consistently. So as you said, right, many progressives we think of as reformers, as, as liberals, um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them latched on to prohibition um, for their own reasons, but by the same token, uh, many anti-progressives, you know, kind of protectors of the old guard also, you know, in, embrace prohibition for their own reasons. So it, it, people looked at um, the lens that they use to look at the question would influence, you know, their, their reasoning for embracing uh, a kind of anti-liquor platform. Fascinating. So a bipartisan movement uniting these urban uh, progressives with rural evangelicals and let's take us up to the progressive era and the question of whiskey taxes is really important and they've been 40% of funding the national government since the time of the founding when the whiskey tax on farmers, the 25% tax that George Washington's administration imposed, created the Whiskey Rebellion. Farmers tried for treason. Washington magnanimously pardons them. But all of a sudden, you don't need the whiskey revenue when the 16th Amendment authorizing a federal income tax passes. So tell us about that and about the politics around 1913, uh, 14, uh, during the administration of that great uh, President, President William Howard Taft, the subject of my next uh, biography. Taft is against the uh, uh, prohibition because he thinks it's gonna be really hard to enforce and will lead to a trampling of the state's rights. But tell us about the um, uh, politics around, uh, take around 1912 at a time when more than half the states are dry, but it's not obvious that a federal amendment is actually gonna pass. Yeah, so there, there were huge economic reasons to avoid it. And those reasons seem so significant that particularly the beer industry, because Americans were starting to transition away from distilled alcohol and more and more towards beer, um, partially because of refrigeration makes that, you know, that technologically possible to transport and store. And as that transition happens, all the people involved in the beer industry, and they're particularly important because they're better organized. Um, in a lot of ways than the distilled liquor industries. They're actually feeling pretty good because their rates of sale are going up. Um, and because they know there's this long history of cooperation with the federal government and of the federal government really relying upon um, beer excise taxes as a, as a means of gaining revenue, they actually don't organize particularly well to stop prohibition simply because they can't believe it could happen, which seems terribly naive, but the people who were pro-prohibition also believed it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, so then it kind of makes a little more sense. It was something that we can look at that amendment as something that seems to have ambushed both sides simultaneously. Wow. Uh, so there's a law in 1913 that would allow states to restrict the booze that's imported into them, and Taft vetoes that law, he wants to be on the Supreme Court. He hates being president, he views everything through constitutional terms, and he thinks Congress has no power to regulate this under its power to regulate interstate commerce. But his veto is overridden by a two-thirds majority, partly because of the intervention of a guy called Wheeler, 
who is one of the political operatives of his day, the head of the Anti-Saloon League, who goes around to individual Congress people in swing districts and said he's gonna mobilize his activists against them. Tell us about his role and how a two-thirds majority is building in Congress around this time that will eventually propose the amendment. I'm gonna start that and then hand it to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but no, I mean, Wheeler is this fascinating character because he's one of the first, I mean, arguably one of the first modern lobbyists. Um, and, and, and he's a product of this era when they're, you know, we, we sort of mentioned the progressives earlier, but there are a whole bunch of progressive causes that, that give rise to uh, a kind of modern advocacy uh, model, people going and organizing uh, you know, visits to congressmen, not their offices, there were no offices then, or there were in the early 20th century, but the, you know, organizing visits to congressmen, uh, let, you know, letter writing campaigns to congressmen, organizing a letter to the editor type uh, programs and public meetings, the kinds of things that we think of today as being you know, um, uh, a central part of modern organized political uh, action w was really, in many ways, the Anti-Saloon League embodied that, but you also saw other uh, advocates um, oftentimes intersecting with them, uh, people trying to uh, secure passage of uh, anti-child labor laws, people trying to secure passage of immigration restriction laws or laws loosening immigration restrictions. So it's actually a period of heightened political activism, but the Anti-Saloon League was particularly innovative in the way that it actually mobilized both public opinion and elite public opinion. To, to tell us more about the Anti-Salute League and Wheeler, Dan Okrant in his great book, which we relied on for the American Spirits exhibit, describes Wheeler as basically an older version of Ned Flanders uh, from The Simpsons. I actually so. kind of like that. <laughs> no, I mean, Wheeler is, um, if Ned Flanders was terrifying, I think that would be the best <laughs> way to describe it. So, because um, Wayne terrifying. Wheeler is, uh, has an insane organizational sense and a willingness to, um, well, let's just say pressure. Let's see, if he had been part of the mob, he would have been very successful. Um, it was one of those things where he was able to find just the right person in just the right position and figure out exactly how to persuade that person that there was an enormous popular support for prohibition. Even in, this involved um, trying to remove people from office by circulating things that were kind of unsavory by making it appear that people who were merely neutral on the issue actually had a close relationship to the liquor traffic. He wasn't above such techniques, and he did use them quite a bit. Um, but that's when we talk about the Anti-Saloon League. It's this idea that it's, for most historians, we call it the first major pressure group. as something different and special um, in comparison to politics regulated by political parties. There was this whole movement happening at the same time where people were trying to clean up political parties. They were trying to um, make primary elections run legitimately. <laughs> they were trying to uh, create initiative and referendum to um, establish better procedures for bringing forward candidates, um, all sorts of regulations to try and make political parties better and more democratic. Um, and then all of a sudden the Anti-Saloon League comes in and is like, we don't need political parties, we can just represent the people directly. Um, and that kind of became an overwhelming sort of uh, jolt to the entire way that people organized politics. No longer was it so dependent on political parties, there were also now special interest groups. Fascinating, imagine uh, populist forces rising up and challenging the political establishment. See, they looked like populist forces and he said they were populist forces but we're not quite sure if he was actually representing all that many people because they kept very secret records. That's interesting. And there were no Gallup polls then, so of course we no, don't know exactly. Yeah. 
But we do know that by 1913, Wheeler was able to persuade two-thirds of Congress to override Taft's veto, even though Taft, the incumbent president, is against prohibition. Wilson, I gather, who vanquishes Taft in 1912, is kind of not clear how he stands on the issue. But it's 1917, and all of a sudden, World War I is nigh. And Wilson gives this dramatic address to Congress on April 2nd. Uh, 1917, declaring war on Germany, and two days later, on April 4th, Congress, by a two-thirds vote, proposes the Prohibition Amendment. Tell us the story of how part of that reflected uh, xenophobic anger at so-called German brewers, and what was the role of World War I in really pushing this amendment over the edge? Sure. I mean, I think World War I, and this is true of a lot of wars, it's a, it, it catalyzes social, economic, demographic forces that have been in play for many years. So m many wars, including World War I, put the economy on steroids, which in effect you know, will, in this particular case, accelerate patterns of urbanization, industrialization, it moves a lot, of, a lot more women, a lot more rural people uh, into urban settings, into the workforce. Um, it, like other wars, it necessarily kind of upends a lot of cultural, um, older cultural patterns. Uh, and it places into a sharp spotlight this question about who is an American. This has been brewing for some years, but it makes, it makes brewing. <laughs> brewing, sorry, sorry. Stop, stop you're killing me. Beer on my mind. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, German Americans are gonna be suspect during the war, but in the immediate aftermath of the war, um, particularly in the context of the larger Bolshevik re revolution, there are a whole lot of people in the United States who become suspect. There's a larger discussion about whether they are um, fit for citizenship or to fit to be part of the American nation, whether they're Italians who are suspected of anar being anarchists or Eastern European Jews who are suspected of being uh, communists or socialists. Um, these people all seem very suspect, particularly in the context, you know, immediate sort of aftermath of a war that required uh, an immense amount of mobilization and a real focus on, on a unity of the, you know, kind of the American spirit. So it, it it, it gives an op it, it provides an opportunity for people who had for some time been worried about these trends to actually f zero in on particular issues like alcohol consumption, um, but also on sexual mores, on religious practices. It allows them to grab certain of these issues and use them um, in a representative way to kind of uh, to uh, to talk about a larger constellation of concerns. Um, and and it and it kind of all comes to a head really around 1919, 1920. Fascinating. So the amendment is proposed uh, on April 4th, 1917, uh, and it's ratified uh, in 1919, about a year and a half later. Uh, the ratification is by three quarters of the state legislatures. Ladies and gentlemen, time for a quick reminder about how you can amend the Constitution. There are <laughs> two ways to propose and two ways to ratify. An amendment can be proposed either by two thirds vote of both houses of Congress, which is what happened with the 18th Amendment, or by a convention called at the request of uh, two-thirds of the state legislatures. And people who are calling for a balanced budget, a convention of the states today, have now gotten uh, seven states short of the two-thirds that are necessary to call a new constitutional convention. That would be the first time that proposal mechanism will have been used in American history. To ratify, you need three quarters of the state legislatures or ratification by three quarters of special conventions called in the states. The 18th Amendment for prohibition was ratified by the legislative method. We'll see that it was repealed in the 21st Amendment by 
the convention method, the only time in American history that ratification by state conventions has ever been used. So uh, with thanks for indulging me on that brief uh, Article 5 primer. It's always good to refresh. Absolutely, it is good to refresh. We had some great middle school kids here today for the opening exhibit, and I quizzed them about how you amended it, and they got oh, each of the, no, no, they actually got it. It was wonderful. Wow. It was Give so those cool. teachers super gold stars. It was a beautiful That's thing amazing. to see. Absolutely yeah. great. Um, Okay, and I can't resist, sorry. And C-SPAN viewers, if you have further doubts about how you should learn about how to amend the Constitution, check out the thrilling interactive Constitution that the National Constitution Center has created with the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. You will see the leading liberal and conservative scholars in America writing about every clause of the Constitution, and we have a great explainer on Article 5 with scholars describing what they agree about and disagree about. Okay, so back to the ratification. It takes three quarters of the state Legislatures, um, how did ratification go? It, it obviously well since in the end 46 out of the 48 states ratified, but World War I is going on, so yeah. what's the ratification process like? Well, it was fast, and that's probably the most important thing. Uh, this is where a lot of the, the later critiques come into play about how democratic, essentially, was this amendment. The speed is important because of two factors. One, it means that soldiers who are in World War I are having difficulty communicating with their representatives um, in the state legislatures. So they're um, having trouble communicating in ways that voters want to be able to, vote, to articulate to their representatives. Um, so that has a factor. They don't have enough time. They don't have enough means. Um, the other thing that comes into play is that the speed means that many of the people in the state legislatures who are voting on ratifying the particular amendment um, were elected before prohibition was set as a national issue. So in many cases, they were elected by constituents who didn't know that representative's position on prohibition. So there's two ways in which the process is very speed, which seems to be a demonstration of enthusiasm, might later be seen as indications that it failed to meet that standard of deliberation um, that's a critical prerequisite for democracy to take place. It is critical. That's the whole point of the ratification process, that idea of deliberation that people have to thoughtfully and deeply talk, deliberate about an issue before uh, the Constitution can be amended, and that's a fascinating process failure. Yeah. Tell us also about how some of these state legislatures are malapportioned, which means that rural votes count for more than urban votes. Is that a factor that, That's absolutely well? right. I mean, voting in the, the kind of throughout the, the I would say the middle part of the 19th century got liberalized for the most part. Um, there were many states in which uh, alien residents who declared their intention to become American citizens could vote. Uh, by and large, there were very few registration processes. There were very few uh, residency requirements. Uh, they had, Americans had long done away with you know, uh, requirements that, that uh, voters be taxpayers or that they own land. And that kind of period of liberalization peaks you know, immediately after the Civil War during Reconstruction with the enfranchisement um, for, some, for a time of African Americans. There's then a period between the 1870s or 1880s and, and the 1920s when voting actually, you know, we don't always go in a, in a, we don't always move in this country in a direction toward kind of uh, liberalization. It, 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 it retrenches um, in large part because of the influx of a large number of immigrants who were seen as being a suspect and not part of the proper body politic. Uh, the rise of a very vocal working class, uh, working class in, in cities, the rise of a, a union movement that many middle class employers who came to embrace prohibition saw as suspects. So you see 
from the 1880s on through the 1920s, uh, a, a rash of laws at the state and local level that make it harder to vote, um, and that also tilt the vote toward more traditional uh, rural counties. So you see laws requiring you know, strict registration processes, uh, voter ID laws for the first time in American history, more or less, um, residency requirements, uh, the states that previously allowed uh, non-citizens who had uh, declared their intent to become citizens, they're no longer allowed to vote. Um, becomes much harder for working people who were very transient, who didn't always have the ability to document their residency, to actually register and participate in, in elections, which effectively meant that a large part of the electorate, um, you know, if you look at voter participation as a, as, as a, yeah, a ratio of eligible, meaning like, you know, of age adults, it drops off precipitously in the late 19th, early 20th century. Add to that the fact that a lot of states um, are apportioning legislative districts and congressional districts either at large in a way that dilutes the urban population or they're relying on census numbers from say 1900 rather than 1910 and 1920 that don't reflect the movement to cities and the arrival of new Americans. So there's definitely a, a, an anti-democratic strain to kinds of things that are going on here and they're not always done with the intention necessarily of limiting the franchise um, or, or, or of embracing some sort of regressive type agenda. You know, progressives who you were sort of pointing out earlier are attempting to, to improve the electoral process or doing, are, are, are instituting processes that also make it more difficult to vote and they're doing it with the best of intentions. So I think there's a good case to be made, certainly, that a lot of the, um, the sort of, uh, the, 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 the convulsiveness of this argument in the 1920s or to the fact that a lot of people simply never viewed prohibition as having been a legitimate exercise of democratic um, process. Fascinating. So this process that's supposed to speak for the deliberative sense of the people may have failed for these uh, malapportionment and other reasons. So uh, the amendment is ratified in 1919. It becomes law and it's up to Congress to say what it means. And Congress quickly proposes this Volstead Act, which sets the limit for permissible uh, spirits at an incredibly low percentage, surprise, really low, yeah. surprising everyone. Many people said, oh, don't worry, it's not gonna cover beer, but it turned out that it did. Yeah. Uh, Wilson is so upset by this that he vetoes the Volstead Act because he said it didn't wait a year, which the amendment said you had to before anything could take effect. Tell us about the Volstead Act and basically, did people feel that they were sold a bill of goods and they got a much more draconian uh, restriction than they expected? I think that the people who were paying attention probably thought that way. I mean, there's a large part, despite the fact that voting turnout is you know, significant. I mean, we're getting numbers between 85 and 90% voting turnout in some elections during this era. Nonetheless, the amount of um, educated voting isn't always extremely high is the way I'd put it. People mostly voted for whatever political party their neighbors voted for. So there wasn't necessarily a lot of attention to the intricacies of what exactly they were setting into play. And so you see with the Volstead Act that people had suspected, oh, the level will be set at you know, maybe 2%. We'll have to pull back some of the alcohol content, but we'll still be able to have like a, a near beer kind of product. And then that quickly became clear that that wasn't gonna be the case. And so a lot of people who had hoped that Congress would interpret um, the new amendment in a way that was generous um, to, you know, for liquor providers, they saw themselves as friends to the federal government. They had been funding it for such a long time. Um, were rather shocked to find out that that wasn't the case. Um, and, but they had a year to kind of 
reorient. Um, and of course, amazingly, because of the way the amendment was written, you could purchase as much alcohol as you wanted in that year before and you could store it. So they did very good sales leading up to prohibition <laughs> and a lot of basements became very full. Is, uh, um, did, did anybody here go to Yale? Okay, because it was a good and place to, to admit it. Yeah, because <laughs> the, the Yale Club in New York had a 16-year supply of liquor in the 20s. They wow. stocked up, especially so, like, you know, membership had its privileges <laughs> as, as, as well it should. Well, how effective was prohibition? I think I saw a statistic in the exhibit that drinking fell by something like 70 percent, and yet at the same time, enforcement was really lax because there were. Only 3,000 federal agents, 10% were dismissed for corruption, and it wasn't enforced. So how is it possible that drinking could have decreased, but enforcement could have been lax? It, it, um, I've seen numbers closer to 30%, but it, dro it drops off quite a bit. And in part because it becomes more expensive. It becomes more difficult. I mean, it, it was always possible for people who, you know, if you belong to the Yale Club or if you, you know, knew the secret password to get into the 21 Club, it was always possible to get alcohol. But, it, but with the supply being shut off, um, uh, and the spigot being shut off, so to speak, it became much more expensive. And to be fair, you know, we, we think back on prohibition as being somehow regressive, and, and um, uh, but alcohol consumption in the 19th century was, by today's standards, pretty obscene. Um, people so, drank too much. Yeah, people drank like, too much. So this wasn't necessarily, you know, bad for America's health. I mean, it did actually set us on a course of more normal alcohol consumption. And a lot of this is because it was interwoven with patterns of work uh, and family and community, particularly for uh, certain ethnic groups, uh, immigrant groups, uh, working class, you know, working men, working men's saloons. Um, and it does kind of sharply interrupt some of those patterns. To, to, just on the unfortunate question, um, one of my colleagues we were talking through today, and he said, you know, marijuana is illegal. If it weren't illegal, I might use it. I probably wouldn't. But the fact that it became illegal decreased consumption. So tell us about that. 30% sounds like a better figure. It was a lot. But it was, it was high in the 19th century. It sort of went down. And then it went back up by the 1970s. So what were the patterns? Yeah. So, okay. So the 19th century, I mean, just people drink a lot. And so like at the beginning of the exhibit, you know, it takes 1830 as a reference point. And I think 1830 is generally seen as the high point in American consumption habits. But I mean, we're talking a lot, especially because most of the consumption is described in terms of all Americans age 14 and over um, when those numbers are usually produced. And it includes women who had lower rates of consumption. And hopefully, the 14-year-olds had lower rates of consumption. So when you think of it, it's not just on average. It's recognizing that a certain part of the population is drinking a whole lot. Okay, we're pretty sure, historically, that those numbers went down because there's lower rates of reported liver disease. See, this is the kind of thing we have to do to kind of come up with a proxy measure. Or there's fewer arrests for public drunkenness. Um, and then after prohibition, when um, the commodity is legalized again and can be taxed, um, at that point, the rate of the n amount of liquor that get taxed is lower than the rate that did pre-prohibition. So for how it affected people's habits, I think part of it is an argument that prohibitionists have long made, which is that if something's legal, it seems respectable. And so when, when alcohol became illegal, it became less respectable. And for some people, that made it better and more exciting, especially when accompanied by jazz. And for some people, that made it even less acceptable and kind of unseemly and gross. And part of that has to do with what the drinking culture was really like, what public drinking was like in the 19th century, which was um, 
mostly the equivalent of dive bars. So imagine only dive bars with not a lot of other options except for some ethnic communities that had other traditions. Like, I wouldn't mind going to a beer garden. That'd be great, but I'm not going to one of those 19th century saloons. Well, That's just gross. Yeah. Well, was, it, yeah. was, was it like the Mad Men era from the 60s where people are just drinking at lunch and all afternoon and are plastered all the time? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you look at patterns, but very functional. Yeah, for, for yeah. yeah, for working for working men, you know, in the 19th century, I mean, Except you the would big machines. Yeah, that you was would bad. you would work, <laughs> you would drink, you would work, you would drink, um, and then you know, as you got higher rates of urbanization, industrialization, the, uh, you know, you had a saloon culture that rose up. But remember, the late 19th, early 20th century, that public drinking culture was very much gender segregated and uh, mostly male. You wouldn't see women. Um, going into saloons, they wouldn't have been welcome, and there was a, a sharp divide between the public sphere, which was for men, that was work and politics and the saloon, and then women, which was home and hearth and child rearing. What's fascinating is that the era of prohibition is, is arguably the first, it's the first era in which drinking becomes a heterosocial activity, um, and, it, and it comes to kind of embody the sophisticated you know, set that's flouting all of these conventions in the 20s, and, and including the law. Um, and they're doing it men and women together, but you don't get that really actually until it becomes illegal. We have in the exhibit a powder room, which is made out of a broom closet. You had to create powder rooms or, uh, for women in these bars. So is that, is that right that it became an unwitting engine for gender integration? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, it, it definitely had that role. I mean, and there we're talking about a particular class of women, right? Um, and a particular kind of ethnic group. You know, Irish women had had traditions of even home sales and things like that. But here we're talking about women who could pay to go into a, a nice nightclub and or someone they knew could pay to have them come into a nice nightclub and have cocktails. You know, this is the birth time of cocktails and what I'm now going to call, what we all know, are called the girly drinks, right? Anything that is pink or has sparkles or anything like that, they all become very popular. Um, and part of it is to try and deliberately welcome a, a women's clientele who, um, most of the time in the 19th century saloons, you either came in as a woman through a back door into a ladies' lunch area, which was kind of eh, or there were prostitutes. I mean, it wasn't a, an environment in which, um, there's a reason why it was so shocking in the 1870s when you'd have large groups led by the minister's wife storming the saloon and trying to disrupt all of its patrons by praying loudly in the middle. It was because you never saw women in saloons except for the naked women on the wall, but that was another thing altogether. So it was this idea of the transformation of an environment that had been unseemly into an environment that's stylish. And that transformation is mind-boggling because it does create a whole new heterosocial world in which men and women can enjoy each other's company. It's not a fluke that the 1920s are the era when we first seeing, start seeing dating as a customary practice, um, much to my great-grandmother's heart attack. Um, she used to call cars bedrooms on wheels, which evidently was a thing other people's grandmothers also called them. Um, there's a whole culture of young people um, of both sexes coming together and just enjoying each other's company. Um, and I mean that euphemistically as well as accurately. Yeah. I, I, I've heard that equation that in Texas in the 20s it was said that driver's ed and sex ed were took well, place at the same at the same time. Sure. Robert and Helen Lind were a husband and wife a husband and wife sociologist, and they went to Muncie, Indiana in the mid 20s, and they spent about a year studying the town. They 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 published you know their kind of. Uh, ethnography, so to speak, of the town. It was called Middletown. It later came out that it was Muncie. And I mean, the, the kind of cluster of concerns that parents had 
um, in this era when more kids are going to high school, it's the first, it's the first decade where you had a, a kind of discernible adolescent or teenage subculture, and the things they were concerned about were sex, uh, alcohol, and the car, and they thought the automobile had a lot to do with the other two because it was giving people literal freedom to go out and um, boys and girls together go out and, and do things that were illicit, including drink. It's, the, it's said that the sexual revolution of the 60s was centrally driven by the pill. Was the sexual revolution of the 20s driven by prohibition? Uh, I don't think call it driving. <laughs> well, <laughs> just throwing out a thesis there. No, but, but I think that they're they're all related factors, right? They go together. There's a certain aesthetic, um, a young people's aesthetic of the 1920s that's clearly identifiable with everything from fashion to um, how one spends leisure time to what expectations are before marriage. Um, all of that was kind of coming together. So it's still an environment in which the women's dorms have curfews and the men's dorms don't. Um, that's going to last a while. But it's, it's different in some ways. There's a intimacy. There's people know each other better before they get married. I think. I, I, yeah, I think you, know, you can look at trends over the 19th, 20th century, and I'll bring it back to prohibition. It's, you know, when, you, when you go from a, an agrarian society to an urban society, um, there's no longer an economic incentive to have seven children who can help you on the farm. Rather, there's an incentive to have two children because children are no longer an economic help. They're, they're a liability if you have too many of them, and now they have to go to school later in, in, into their lifespan. So children actually, are less profitable. That's right. They're less profitable, yeah. and you have to invest more in them, and if you want them to do well, they probably need to have high school, maybe even a little bit of college. So people begin to disassociate gradually, you know, sex from procreation. Now, once you do that, you're also acknowledging that there are reasons to have sex that have nothing whatsoever to do with having a family, and that's a sort of backdoor to having a, a sort of, you know, there, there's a lot that flows from that, and it converges in the 1920s with a culture, with a public leisure culture. There are now electric streetlights that allow people to stay out later. There are public amusements. People are working a fixed eight, you know, eight day or ten day hour rather than a continuous sort of cycle and pattern on the farm, and so they expect to have a leisure culture out of work, uh, and it's possible now in these cities to do that in public and to do it with men and women together. And it, and it happens that you know prohibition kind of maps itself over these developments, and, and it means that alcohol is going to be a theme behind that. And for people who are alarmed about the first sexual revolution in the 20s, who are alarmed about the kind of the, the creeping uh, uh, kind of confluence of, of the, the public and private spheres for men and women, alcohol can become a very powerful representative problem uh, or virtue. Um, there are some people who think it's very sophisticated and they embrace it for the same reasons they embrace all the modernity around them. Wow. Well, certainly seeing cross-cutting forces from the moralism that led to prohibition to the sexual revolution, which is undermining its enforcement. So back to the constitutional story, the, it's not illegal to drink, it's just illegal to sell. Uh, so enforcement is really ineffective and there are all these raids. Tell us about the failure of the enforcement of prohibition. It turns out to be much harder than you'd think. <laughs> I think is the, the long story short on there. So in the actual amendment, um, I think most historians are most inclined to place the blame on the concurrent enforcement clause, which is part of it that says basically that um, either state or federal law enforcement can take responsibility in any given place. The idea here was that um, 
people who are, lived in states where the state wasn't terribly supportive of prohibition could request assistance from the federal government in order to make those areas dry. And the importance for law enforcement being evenly applied was that otherwise you just cross state lines to go get alcohol and then could drive back, which you could now do in your car. You know, so this was more of an issue. The problem was um, akin, however, to what happens, uh, and many of you might remember this, of having a toddler and going to a party with your spouse, which is that both of you take the toddler with you to the party, everyone's watching the toddler, so no one's watching the toddler, the toddler pulls down the tablecloth and there's a mess all over the floor. You know, when everybody has the responsibility, nobody has the responsibility. Um, and with a maximum of about, I mean, our best guesses are around 2,500 prohibition agents at any given time. That just was in no way sufficient to the task that the federal government alone could take responsibility for this. And the state and local governments just didn't want to, especially in the wettest areas, where they didn't have to be on the take. They just had to decide that this was not interesting to them. Wow. Uh, although some of them were on the take and 10% were dismissed for uh, corruption, uh, Taft had warned about this failure of enforcement, even though the concurrent enforcement was necessary to reassure states that their prerogatives wouldn't be trampled. More to say about the failure of enforcement? Sure. I mean, one of the ironies is that the, the, some of the law's staunchest proponents would also have been some of the, the sharpest opponents of a more liberal leading, reading of the Commerce Clause, which would have actually allowed uh, a larger role for federal, um, for federal law enforcement. Um, but, but this is a period when you have a relatively small federal state. There's not a strong law enforcement apparatus. Um, and there are entire sections of the country where there's a big demographic political change um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, underway. Uh, you take a, a city or a state like New York where political participation and turnout in elections just by sheer numbers shoots up dramatically between 1920 and 1928. That's a whole new generation of ethnic Americans who've come of age, they're citizens, they're voting, um, and you get entire jurisdictions where you effectively have the, the equivalent of, um, the equivalency of, of, of nullification, basically, where the, the state or local authorities refuse to enforce it or just simply declare that it's not a priority and they won't. Wow, um, well we have lots of great questions, but we have a lot more to talk about, including the constitutional revolution, of the failure of prohibition and the repeal in the 21st Amendment. Would you allow me to just quickly tell the story of the Olmstead case? Because this is the central uh, constitutional Fourth Amendment case of the early 20th century. It unites my two heroes, Chief Justice Taft for the majority and Justice Louis Brandeis for the dissent. And it's the most important privacy dissent of the 20th century. So I want all of you, you know, you can't come to the Constitution Center without getting a homework assignment. Your homework assignment is to read Justice Brandeis's dissenting opinion in Olmstead. And if you go to the exhibit, you can see the original telephone that the bootlegger, Roy Olmstead, used to make his phone calls to import all of this incredibly profitable illegal booze from uh, uh, British Columbia and Canada. So really fast, here's what happened. He's a wild bootlegger. He's making these phone calls on the telephone. Uh, federal agents put wiretaps on the sidewalks leading up to his office. They listen in on his conversations. They say he's bootlegging and they convict him. He says the wiretap was illegal because there was no warrant and the evidence should be excluded. In an opinion by Chief Justice Taft, the court holds no trespass, no warrant required because it was public property and the wiretaps were under public sidewalks and they didn't trespass into the guy's office, Taft said, you don't need a warrant. 
Brandeis' Descents, it's the most important privacy descent of the 20th century. I really want you to read it. He envisions new technologies. He has in his desk drawer a clipping about a new technology, television. But he misunderstands television. He thinks it's a two-way technology where you can see each other through both ends of the camera. Basically, he anticipates Skype and webcams. And, <laughs> but uh, he, uh, his law clerk says, you can't just look out of a TV camera and see someone on the other side. Now, of course, you can. But Brandeis alludes to it, and in this haunting, prescient, prophetic passage, he says, ways may someday be developed by which it's possible without physically intruding into the home to extract secret papers from drawers and introduce them in court. A far smaller intrusion at the time of the founding was held to violate the Fourth Amendment. Uh, the general warrants that sparked the American Revolution revealed less of our thoughts, sensations, and emotions than wiretapping, which reveals the conversations on both sides of the wire. We have to translate the Constitution so it protects the same amount of privacy in the age of the wires as it did at the time of the framing. Incredible opinion. Please read it and see how these two great constitutionalists, Taft as the originalist, didn't like prohibition but thinks it has to be enforced, and Brandeis the prophet says that it's privacy, not property, that has to be protected. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Um, I was quite amused. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love teaching criminal procedure because they're all prohibition cases. And it's not just Olmsted. Carroll, the case involving car searches, was a prohibition case where they rip open the upholstery and find the booze. So uh, there's a lot to learn about the Constitution and criminal procedure through prohibition, just as there's a lot to learn about the war on drugs of the 90s. But we've seen this. Uh, groundswell of doubt about prohibition and Franklin Roosevelt is inaugurated and there's the depression and all of a sudden you need the money from the liquor tax again and somehow in 1932 the repeal amendment is proposed and by 1933 it's passed not by the state legislatures but by this unique procedure never used again or before in American history of special ratifying conventions called in the states to ensure the state legislatures didn't undermine it back to what we started with, how did that happen? So the idea all along, um, so there had been people who, because they were invested in the liquor industry, had been opposed to prohibition. But just as prohibition was about to come up, all of a sudden you start having people who aren't invested in, pro, in um, alcohol at all, um, financially, um, who start to become really concerned about the amendment's implications. And those implications get amplified when the amendment isn't attended to particularly. So you get someone like um, Pierre DuPont who switches sides, or Mabel Walker Wild Wildebrandt. Um, you get these figures in business um, I, in my classes, I teach them as people who the women wear pearls and the men wear hats. You know, the very, the very collected, professional, highly connected sorts of people, um, both men and women. Um, and as they start to kind of advance the ideas of repeal, they keep in emphasizing both the way in which it seems to be teaching a disrespect for the law and the fact that it's questionable about its democratic character in the first place. They tried making that latter complaint first through courts, um, and it didn't really get the traction they wanted. But it did have appeal popularly, this idea that somehow the enactment of this amendment had not been reflective of the popular will, something that, you know, uh, was at least an arguable point based on how people responded to it. Um, and that translated into um, a campaign for repeal that had to be consistent. In, if the critique was that the prohibition amendment hadn't been democratic, they needed to find a method for repeal that looked as democratic as possible. And going to state conventions seemed to do that. 
But then there's the tricky point we were talking about earlier, which is the idea of state conventions as a ratification method means everybody who selected, the voters knew exactly how that person was gonna vote um, before they walked in the door to do the vote. But that also means that there wouldn't be deliberation as part of that process. So that any deliberation was only going to be between constituents and, in this case, the, the delegates who would represent them. It wasn't going to happen amongst the delegates themselves. So it wound up leading to an, a, a version that was arguably more democratic, but was also just differently democratic. And like I think a that's a tension we still work with. Yeah, yeah. it's a referendum. More like a referendum and mm -hmm. uh, but, but also passed very quickly, even more quickly than the original. Even faster. Uh, yeah. Like, it went faster. Fast. I mean, these two amendments are just unusually speedy. Um, and I think that the repeal, maybe you remember, Spring isn't it the fact, doesn't have the record of, okay, now I wish I remembered I off know. the top of my head. Yeah. It's right in this thrilling uh, copy of the Constitution. <laughs> we get four sure on the interactive Constitution. Yeah, I think it's, it's under a year, oh, if I'm remembering in, correctly. Was, yeah. Yeah. I just can't. It. It's the ranking of them that quickly that's the hard part to do. So it is uh, proposed on... Uh, uh, oh, I love that you took out the Constitution. Well, it makes you, me so happy. Well, I always take out the Constitution. And, so, and, and after I read this, I'm going to give you this copy of the oh, Constitution. Oh, well, So you can share it with your friends. The 18th Amendment is hereby repealed. It was passed by Congress on February 20th, 1933, and ratified on December 5th, 1933. Yeah, that's speedy. Really speedy. Yeah, and then it was enacted, thank you. <laughs> I'll give you one after. Anyone who wants one can almost immediately. There was no one-year delay as there had been with the previous amendment. Can I just pick up on one really fascinating point you made before I uh, ask you to uh, chime in on repeal? You said it was challenged in court as anti-democratic. When I was a law student, I came across a wild law review article saying that the 18th Amendment might itself be unconstitutional. The idea of an unconstitutional amendment sounds like a solecism. Um, did some actually argue that in court, and what was the argument? Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember, I, I want to say it was Charles Evans Hughes, but I'm not 100% sure. Yes, it's your um, That basically made this argument that essentially um, the, the process itself, because of both its expedited rate um, and the, the fact that the legislators, um, hadn't, the way that the election cycle had worked was that it was inconsistent with the very ideas of kind of rule by law, which required deliberation as a greater part of the process. Incredible. Those I'd have to reread it in order to be very precise. Well, we yeah. all will, and we'll look for More homework. <laughs> there is homework. C-SPAN viewers, check out, was it Charles Evans Hughes? What were the arguments? And if you can find this really cool law review article from the 20s that I remember as a kid. I kind of love old law review articles. They're so <laughs> meticulous. Well, right? they are, and yeah. they're written in that beautiful typeface. And I know. Just, just like the old books. I was looking at some from like the 1890s the other day. It was great. About they what? so precise. Um, about, um, uh, what were these about? These ones were about civil damage laws. In particular, well, this actually mm -hmm. ties in. So there was a use of civil damage laws pre-prohibition where since women were by virtue of coverture not able to own property if they were married, their husbands owned the property in their, in their, in their name. Um, therefore, if a woman had a husband who had become a drunkard, which was the, cat the category used at the time, um, that she could file an official report with the bartender and with the police department. And if they continued serving her husband, they had denied her her means of support. So the fact that she relied upon her husband as means of support, because the law only gave her that as a choice, translated into the fact that she was entitled to that means of support. And if it was denied to her, then she could sue the bartender, the saloon owner, and anybody up and down the line 
um, for uh, the right of means to support, and they would have to pay for her. And sometimes there was even an extra payment depending on the number of days in jail her husband had to serve. Wow. Well, remember, awesome. you know, totally awesome. It was a great <laughs> read law review articles and ask what they're about. <laughs> well, the, the fact that so many women were at the forefront of this movement, as well as other progressive movements, you saw a fascinating sort of dynamic in the late 19th, early 20th century, culminating in the progressive era, where women who were politically active would oftentimes, they weren't, they rhetorically wouldn't challenge the idea that there were separate spheres, you know, the private sphere, home and hearth for women, and the public sphere of politics and public life for men. They would argue that in a more complex urban industrial society, it, for women to be protectors of home and hearth, they needed a role in, they needed a voice in politics because there were saloons that they couldn't control unless they had the vote. There were, uh, there were public health and safety issues. There were school issues now that their children were probably attending proper public schools. And so their argument in favor of political enfranchisement was in order for us to be guardians of our homes and to provide these nurturing, um, uh, nurturing environments for our husbands and our children. We actually need a voice. We need a say. We 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 actually to to be women as you understand women. We actually have to have some sort of input into whether uh, saloons are allowed to serve alcohol and at what hours and whether people should even be able to consume alcohol. So it became a powerful wedge in for women to say like we're not going to challenge separate spheres, but we would argue we can't actually do our job as mothers and wives unless you allow us some input into these questions. Yeah. Wow. It's an amazing way to use, to leverage weakness for strength. Yeah. Right? That's a powerful way of putting it. So for the repeal, one of our questions is, which two states did not ratify and why they were different states? For the repeal, do I have it right that it was North and South Carolina? And for the uh, original Prohibition Amendment, it was Rhode Island and Connecticut? I remember the first two. I don't remember the second two. I don't know. For the 18th, it was Connecticut and Rhode Island. I have no idea why. I've tried to look it up and I haven't been able to fully track it down. Um, for Rhode Island, I know, like, I've done a lot looking at the Prohibition Party, which is the longest living minor party in American history. And um, they actually had a movement in Rhode Island and they were very upset about it. Um, well, Connecticut, I mean, I, this is speculation, but Connecticut had really bad uh, apportionment going into the 1960s. I mm -hmm. think it was Connecticut that was the, the, the US Supreme Court case that ultimately said one man, one voter. It was one of the court cases that led to it. So there was a, you know, I think they were still doing at-large elections. I mean, it, uh, they probably had a, a pretty uh, unrepresentative sample. I don't know about their, their referendum system, but it was still a fairly non-democratic system of, of choosing representatives to various bodies. Yeah, and in the southern states, there's also the ways in which race and segregation dramatically reconfigure the way people process prohibition. Um, so like in a lot of southern states, it's as um, African Americans become completely, utterly disenfranchised and denied their legitimate rights to vote, as that gets kind of um, locked in to position, all of a sudden prohibition is able to come up as an issue simply because the people who are remaining as voters feel secure that they can have debates amongst themselves. So I mean, race always plays a role whenever you're looking at that. Um, what a cross, it's, it's so complicated, the, the, the fissures and uh, cross-cutting interests uh, that are bipartisan on both sides. So prohibition is repealed, and happy days are here again, and the depression is here, but people can drink again, except they can't, because it goes back to the states, and the states are allowed to decide what sort of uh, drinking to allow, and many of them retain draconian dry laws. Tell us about those. 
Yeah, so it's some states that do it. The localities, I think, are, are even more interesting. Um, you still, even into, we were talking about some very contemporary examples, yep. right, where cities still have dry statutes, um, or there can be um, a large variety of what are called blue laws, which are just all sorts of different sorts of regulation. Um, like, I remember in, co well, not in college, um, not being able to obtain alcohol after 10 p.m., um, things like that that seem at times rather arbitrary, but are historical relics that are still part of um, the contemporary legal situ uh, situation. My uh, family has a shore house at the Jersey Shore in a town called Ocean Grove, which was founded oh. as a, a Methodist yeah. camp meeting, and it's still a dry town, and it's still, uh, the town is technically, the land is owned by the the camp meeting, and so for those of us who are sinners, we have to walk across the bridge to Asbury Park and get a <laughs> buy a drink. But you know, yeah. Vineland, New Jersey, same Vineland. way. Pasadena. Sure. Yeah. Um, I've written on Harriman, Tennessee. There's a whole variety of these places that were actually established as dry communities. Like um, for Harriman, they stayed dry way into the 20th century, um, in part because the original um, lease or the original land deeds had locked into the very deed that you that you received when you purchased your house, that if you ever bought, sold, or consumed liquor on site, there's the consumption one, that your house actually reverted back to the land company. So there's all sorts of creative ways to keep an area dry if that's your overall Our house is wet, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't resist asking if, as the Supreme Court has held in the reproductive autonomy cases, the right to privacy includes the right to define your own conception of meaning, the universe, the mystery, and human life. Have any of these dry laws been challenged as violations of the constitutional right to autonomy? I can't think of any. I think most of the time it, it winds up being less repeal and more just meh. You know, people just kind of do what they're going to do. Um, the, the sense that this would be something worth the investment of rigorous enforcement, I think, has largely lost. They're mostly um, symbolic. Um, in a lot of cases. I'm sure we can find an exception to that, um, but in most cases, it seems to be mostly symbolic. Uh, wow, and uh, alcohol consumption by the 1970s went up to its pre-prohibition level? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but, it, but at the same time, those numbers can be interpreted differently. So even though the average American um, by the 1970s is consuming as much as the average American in, say, 1915, um, nonetheless, um, since that's being shared more widely between men and women, it's distributed more evenly, and because we're no longer counting people who are 14 to 21 in that number, um, between those two things, the um, rates of consumption aren't necessarily as damaging, is the way I'd put it. So in other words, we're learning to drink much better. <laughs> I'm delighted, and I hope that all National Constitution Center members will drink very well tonight. <laughs> um, what, uh, gender case involving women and men that Justice Ginsburg uh, criticized where women who were found uh, to have been driving under the influence were chivalrously escorted home by the police, whereas young men were supposed to be arrested, and that was challenged as a violation of gender discrimination. Uh, are there interesting constitutional issues involving gender and alcohol throughout the 60s, 70s, and so forth? Beyond that one, which is interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the 19th and 20th century, there's no doubt that men's and women's drinking are perceived very differently. Um, and probably the opposite of that, that women who drank in a public way were, were dismissed that that was a, a signifier yeah. for a whole world of misdeeds and criminal activities, versus for men, the consequences were just nowhere near as high. But the idea of a double standard operating throughout the law, I think, is, is pretty consistent. But I can't think of anything through the 60s and 70s. 
um, in the same way, except uh, college dorm regulations, really. Right. I mean, the, the, I think it's the lens of in loco parentis laws that came crashing down in the late 60s and early 70s. I mean, in the 1960s, certainly the in loco parentis laws um, treated uh, college women very differently than they did college men. Um, there were curfews imposed on college women, not on college men. At schools like Barnard had these bizarre rules that you know said that men and women could be in the same dorm room if the door was open and three or four legs was on the were on the floor but yes. and and clearly there was a sense that that women were to be treated as as sort of wards of the college and men were to be treated as uh creatures who needed to be kept away from those women under all but very prescribed circumstances and that in loco parentis structure comes crashing down in the 70s at which point men and women are treated equally um, on equal footing um, time for just a couple questions from our spectacular audience, several about marijuana. Are there parallels to prohibition issues to the legalization of marijuana uh, today? Okay, I have a take on that. Okay, okay. please do. For understanding the repeal that happens during prohibition, the key thing is that context of the Great Depression. Okay, so with the Great Depression um, and legalization happening at that moment, um, it doesn't immediately inflate to pre-prohibition levels um, simply because there's um, uh, no apparatus. Nobody has the money to start big factories at the same rate again, right? Um, the, all of the capital that's required to do that isn't going to be in place. So the question is with something like marijuana legalization, how it works in terms of business economy is a little bit different. Um, in part because the development of kind of mass agro-business in terms of marijuana cultivation um, doesn't have the, um, uh, the cap on it that um, the Great Depression had put on that same commodification for alcohol. So. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, A, marijuana consumption is probably pales in comparison to alcohol consumption in the late 19th, early 20th century, so it's not as jarring. And, you don't have the same social structures in place that you did uh, in the early 20th century. I mean, church organizations, reform organizations, there's not, it's a different context, I think. And there's no saloon equivalent. No. Right, there's no opium den. There's no that sense that this is tied up with other behaviors that are, are um, Outside of fish concerts, yes, I think that's yes, right. Yes, yeah, yeah. and the occasional laser show. Right. Yeah. Um, as, as we, uh, and close up, several uh, of our guests want to know about the relevance of the prohibition story to today. So the amendment uh, that seems most likely uh, to get some kind of convention of the state's uh, th two-thirds uh, majority is a balanced budget amendment. What does the story of prohibition tell us about the likelihood of, say, a balanced budget amendment actually being proposed or adopted today? I mean. I would say like the, the overall lesson from prohibition is don't make a constitutional amendment if a federal law will do what you want to do, because it's much easier to tweak a federal statute. Not that it's easy, but what's involved in trying to tweak a retweak for the amendments is really a logistical nightmare. Um, and yeah, a lot of the work was done through the Volstead Act, and that was the place where changes could be made most concretely. But um, having an amendment that was so difficult to repair or moderate largely contributed to its failure. So um, at some point, citizens have to exert some amount of trust um, that, that the process itself of negotiating, of deliberation, is going to yield outcomes that are going to be better in some ways than that permanent kind of status of, of using the Constitution as a lawmaking instrument. 
Prohibition, uh, the Progressive Era was an era of constitutional change. The 16th Amendment, uh, authorizing the federal income tax. The 17th Amendment, authorizing the direct election of senators. The 18th for prohibition. The 19th for women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. All, who, um, <laughs> all uh, reflected popular uh, movements. They didn't spring out of nowhere, but they had been percolating for uh, decades often and uh, were bipartisan movements that were eventually codified into law. What does that tell us about the possibility of seeing an amendment to the Constitution today? Um, I, th I think that the similarities between then and now, 100 years ago today, are that, as you say, there's a period of incredible political engagement. Um, and it was also a confusing period of political engagement where you had ideological blocks that would um, coalesce together when it was convenient, and then they would coalesce against each other when it was convenient. There's a, I think it was Peter Finley, an historian who sort of wrote this famous article 30 years ago saying, was there even a progressive movement? Did it, did it exist? I mean, you had people who were in favor of prohibition on one day, you know, working with eugenicists on a particular set of issues, and the next day they'd be battling each other on immigration reform. So it, it was a kind of uh, ideological coalition building block type world. Where, and, and I think you know, we are sharply polarized today, but to some extent, if, if the, the Sanders and Trump phenomena show us anything, is that there are a whole bunch of voting blocks out there that are it, driven by ideological questions that don't necessarily match up neatly to partisan politics. And so um, you know, the question is, does that lend itself to lawmaking via a constitutional vehicle? Potentially, but it, it, it's 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 messy, and I think the lesson is that it will be very difficult to predict which groups line up with each other in order to actually support such uh, such an initiative. I think it would be surprising; you'd be surprised to see who actually um, aligns with whom. And that's not just the issue; it's also the question of whether you think the Constitution's the best vehicle for it. So the people who might align in one way on the issue will align another way about that particular strategy. Well, on that wise note of caution, I have to thank you both for a superbly engaging and spectacular discussion. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Let's go out and see the American Spirits exhibit. C-SPAN viewers, come to Philadelphia and see American Spirits, and let's go have some great drinks. Thank you very much. <laughs> Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Tom Donnelly. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. It is great, and please tell me what you think of it. Please also subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity and engagement of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Go to the website, constitutioncenter.org, Go to join and learn more and sign up and become part of the National Constitution Center's family of lifelong learners. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.